to The Dynamic Decade, a podcast focused on the economy, energy, and innovation. Your host today is Ron Hayes. Well, thanks so much, and welcome back to The Dynamic Decade. Ron Hayes with you once again today. We are very happy to have along with us today Claire Birch. She's a Ph.D. student from the University of Oklahoma in Norman, Oklahoma. Claire, let's talk a little bit about uh, who you are, first of all. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, a little bit about uh, some of the things that you've been working on uh, as you've pursued your, your doctorate. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. Um, So I'm starting my second year of my PhD here at the University of Oklahoma in sustainability, Um, but I also received my Master of Science in sustainability here. And so my master's thesis was looking at the perception of the conflict between wind energy development and biodiversity conservation. And so I was super interested to understand how environmentally conscious individuals in the state of Oklahoma we're understanding how wind energy development and conservation efforts were impacting each other um, because it's something that we see in the news a lot, especially when we look at um, issues like land use conflict or the prairie chicken specifically here in Oklahoma. And so broadly, I'm super interested in environmental conflicts and renewable energy development. Um, and I'm really driven by wanting to see strong community involvement in renewable energy projects. I'm interested in the ways that the renewable energy industry can increase the transparency of their development process, as well as ensure communities are receiving the maximum benefit from these projects. And so I'm also looking at the ways we can minimize environmental impacts while maximizing the environmental benefits of renewable projects. Um, I have a background in zoology and conservation, um, but a passion for renewable energy development. So I'm just super interested in how the two of those um, interact and influence each other so that we can continue to build our renewable energy legacy um, in a super positive way. Um, I'm real curious, Claire, you know, what got you interested in this uh, a degree uh, in, in sustainability? And, and, and tell us what you, what you think that means to you anyway. Yeah. So when I started my undergraduate degree in Ohio, um, I was super focused on animals. I was really interested in wildlife and wildlife conservation. Um, but as I went through my degree, I took some courses in environmental science, and I started to realize that if we wanted to do conservation work well, there had to be a human component. Um, How can we involve communities? How can we communicate with communities and make sure that they have buy-in in these projects as well? Um, So this very animal-centric focus that I had kind of shifted a little bit. And so when I started looking at graduate schools, I was really interested in a degree that would allow me to keep focusing on that natural resource component, but start to add the human side. Um, And so that's where sustainability came into play, because for me, it's just really the perfect degree, honestly, for anyone who's interested um, in environmental science or climate change or anything like that, um, because we're really focused on not only the environmental side of things, which I think you hear a lot in the conversation, but we're also interested in the social and economic components. So how can we, you know, protect the environment, but also make sure that we are providing housing to everyone or that we're continuing to grow our economy and make sure that there are jobs for everyone. Um, And so sustainability, to me, just represented this perfect opportunity to keep pursuing my, you know, my passion for conservation, but also start understanding how people were involved. Um, And so then when I started my graduate degree, my advisor had this project looking at wind energy development. And honestly, I knew nothing about it. Um, I'd only seen turbines uh, driving up to Chicago and Illinois, but I really didn't know anything about the industry. But let me tell you, I you know, read a few academic papers. I started understanding what the industry looked like in Oklahoma, and I was, I was sold. Um, and so I shifted gears a little bit, 
but um, still staying in that realm of sustainability and working, um, you know, with the, the human side of things, the community side of things. Well, that uh, kind of leads us into this uh, whole conversation we want to have today, Claire, about uh, uh, some of the work that you've done, some of the some of the uh, that you're uh, actually studies that you're you're trying to to put together uh, under under your uh, doc, doctorate uh, uh, discipline, and and that that's all about the cost of energy in this country, and especially uh, uh, it seems like Uncle Sam really loves to hand out subsidies to energy uh, producers, one form or another. Uh, can you? you explain to us what federal energy subsidies are, what they look like, and, and, and exactly, you know, what, what do they mean to the industry? Yeah, so I personally really like the explanations that the Environmental Energy Study Institute provides. Um, you know, I think that they explain it way better than I could um, trying to, to form the words for it. So I'm just going to give those to you, and I just wanted to make sure that I gave, you know, credit to this really great organization that has some fantastic resources. Um, and so first, we have direct subsidies. And so these are the subsidies within our U.S. tax code that are designed specifically to support and reward production of fossil fuels or renewable energy. So these are the, the subsidies that in the tax code, it specifically mentions the energy industry. And so, for example, when we think about direct subsidies to the fossil fuel producers, we're typically talking about two subsidies, intangible drilling cost deduction and percent depletion. And so I want you to hang in there with me. It's a little complicated, and I tried my best to kind of, you know, simplify it um, just so we have an understanding of what these subsidies look like. And so the first is intangible drilling cost deduction. And basically what this does is it allows companies to deduct a majority of their cost of drilling wells domestically. And this really just helps to make the process of drilling wells more affordable for these companies from the beginning. The second one we have is percentage depletion, which allows businesses to deduct a certain amount from their taxable income as a reflection of the declining production from an oil reserve over time. And so I'm sure that some folks have heard of um, just like standard cost depletion um, and what that looks like you know, in the business world. But the interesting thing about this particular subsidy is that it's structured a bit differently than that cost depletion that some folks may be familiar with. Um, the percentage depletion is not based on the capital cost of production, so what it costs to, you know, drill a well, um, but it's just based on an arbitrary percentage that's kind of determined by the U.S. tax code. And so the deductions a company could claim often actually exceed what it's costing them to produce in the first place. And this is a subsidy that gets a lot of attention for that reason, um, because we're paying oil and gas companies sometimes more than what they're actually paying to produce in the first place. Um, so it's, it's interesting there. It's a little bit controversial. Um, and so then kind of turning to direct subsidies to the renewable energy sector, there are also two main ones here. Um, we have the production tax credit, tax credit for wind and the investment tax credit for solar. And so the production tax credit gives wind developers a certain money, amount of money per megawatt hour of energy they produce. And so the production tax credit in the tax code doesn't only apply to wind, but I think most people who've heard of the production tax code kind of hear it in the context of wind. And so that's why I'm attaching it directly to that particular energy source. Um, the amount given per megawatt hour has decreased since the implementation of the production tax credit over a decade ago. Uh, I believe we're now at about $9 per megawatt compared to projects getting over $20 per megawatt before 2018. And so I just wanted to highlight here that that's a pretty significant decrease in how much our wind developers are getting per megawatt that they're producing. And so the second subsidy that I mentioned is the investment tax credit. And this gives a refund on capital investment 
of solar, wind, and other renewable facilities. Um, now, as I mentioned here, you can see the investment tax credit with wind, hydro, and some other renewables, but we do often hear about the investment tax credit specifically with solar. Um, and I personally really like this tax credit um, because it helps make solar a bit more accessible to individuals who might want to install it on their homes. Um, it's a huge incentive for individuals who are looking at residential solar. And so while this refund was 30% when it was first implemented, we're down to 26%. Um, and it was actually supposed to drop to 22% this year. But thankfully, that didn't happen. And so again, just highlighting here that we are seeing a drop in the amount of subsidies that the renewable energy industry is getting over time. And so those are some of the big direct subsidies. Um, and so now we're going to move on to what's called indirect subsidies. And these are honestly a little bit harder to track than the direct subsidies that companies get. And so these subsidies are typically aimed at businesses in general. And so that's why they're a little bit harder to track when we're talking about the energy sector. Um, because like I mentioned with direct subsidies, it's in the tax code, you know, that this is for oil producers, this is for wind producers. Um, but these indirect subsidies, it's not explicitly stated. It's just something that energy producers also have access to. And so a few of the big tax code indirect subsidies are related to the fossil fuel industry. And these are the master limited partnership structure, the foreign tax credit, and last in, first out accounting. And now, honestly, Ron, I can't say I'm very versed on tax code and the ins and out of these particular pieces, so I'm, honest, I'm not going to try and explain these, but I just wanted to highlight that these are all things only oil and gas companies can access. Um, the current language in our tax code, for some reason, excludes renewable energy companies. And so this is kind of an interesting point to make there, that the indirect subsidies are a little bit more accessible to oil and gas companies than they are to renewables. Um, and there has been some movement to change the language for the master limited partnership um, to include renewable energy structures, but that just hasn't quite happened yet. Right. And so we can also talk about the limited investment company, investment companies are expected to put forth for decommissioning and cleaning up after production sites. Um, and this is another indirect subsidy of sorts. There's also a plethora of liability caps for various pieces of the industry that allow a company to pay significantly less for damages caused by things like oil spills. Um, there's also increased cost of maintenance and restoration of state and local roads, um, as well as safety standards for rail cars that are used to carry oil. Um, so there's a lot of different ways that our system provides money to different energy producers without explicitly including it in the tax code. And so we can think of indirect subsidies as ways the energy industry receives money beyond direct payouts from the government. And as I mentioned, and as you can see through this explanation, they come in a multitude of different forms and are therefore incredibly difficult to track sometimes. Mm. And so I know that was a ton of information. <laughs> There's so much to talk about when it comes yeah. to subsidies, let me tell you. Like, this is only scratching the surface, just giving like a very brief surface level outline based on my limited knowledge of how taxes work. Um, but it's super interesting to look at you know, the money that these uh, producers are getting from the government. Claire Birch with us today. Claire is a Ph.D. student at the University of Oklahoma in Norman, Oklahoma. And, and Claire, you know, uh, the, I, this is mind-boggling. I mean, when you start thinking about that, you know, you flip a switch and you get the, uh, the, uh, the lights to turn on or you, uh, you turn your ignition switch and your, your car starts, uh, there's a lot of stuff uh, happening with the energy that, that fuels all of that. You know, why, why do you think the government, why does Uncle Sam like to subsidize the cost of energy? Yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, you know, subsidies get a bad name, a bad rap sometimes, but 
I think it makes sense to subsidize energy. It really does. Um, if we think about when fossil fuel energy production first started to rise in the 1900s, it was heavily subsidized because the technology just wasn't affordable. And we're seeing the same thing right now with renewable energy. And so there's a ton of criticism around the production and investment tax credits for wind and solar. But these two subsidies have just assisted in making it easier for clean energy technology to improve the same way that we allowed the fossil fuel technology to improve in the 1900s. Um, and these improvements have dramatically lowered the cost of installation and operation over the years, which is why we see the production tax credit and investment tax credit starting to drop a little bit because the cost of these technologies is not as expensive, so we don't need to support them quite as much anymore. Um, and so as these you know, government subsidies are dropping, we're seeing a shift to corporate investment and market-driven growth. And so I think that renewable energy is a great example of how subsidies can help energy really be successful. Um, the subsidies supported renewable energy in the beginning, but now we're starting to see that outside investment and buy-in to help it grow even further. And so this brings me to the question of what impact subsidies can have on our energy industry. And honestly, the problem with subsidizing energy is that we're just doing it for too long. Um, recent studies have suggested that the oil and coal industry may not actually be as profitable at all without subsidies. Um, and so these are two industries that they've been around for a while. Um, and the reality is that the subsidies are no longer contributing to their success like they were intended to, but they're really just helping to keep them alive. Um, and so we're seeing that energy subsidies are starting to skew the story of profitability a bit. And I think this can stagnate the growth of energy production in the country as a whole. And so I, I definitely understand that subsidies are needed to grow an industry, but I also think that it's important if we're seeing if the energy industry can stand on its own. Um, and this, I think we're seeing this with, with the renewable energy sector. As I mentioned, you know, we're seeing the production and investment tax credits dropping, but the industry is still continuing to grow because there's outside investment. And so it's a really great example of what happens when the government starts to let those subsidies go. And it seems like that uh, you've, you've, you've obviously uh, uh, mentioned the fact that uh, renewables really get a different type of subsidy compared to traditional oil and gas. Uh, the, that, 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 uh, that's an important difference, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the biggest difference here is that, um, as I think we kind of saw as I was running through some of those different subsidies that we have, is that the fossil fuel industry is receiving a lot more from indirect subsidies, whereas the renewable energy industry, everything is pretty straightforward. You know, we're seeing the production tax credit, we're seeing the investment tax credit, and we're seeing money for research and development. And we can see all of those funds because they're directed at the renewable energy industry. But when we start to get into those indirect subsidies, it becomes a lot harder to kind of track, you know, who's getting money and where it's coming from in terms of, you know, the master limited partnership or just, you know, the money that they're not spending on decommissioning and reclaiming the land for these coal mines. There's just a lot of different pieces that become a lot more complicated to track when we start moving into indirect subsidies. I know when you, when you start talking about the, uh, the whole concept of indirect subsidies, uh, there, there's this, uh, this term that uh, some folks like to throw around this, the cost of energy beyond the subsidy. Uh, you know, can, can you kind of explain a little bit more of that and the impacts that you've seen uh, that really are, as you've looked at the studies, the, the impacts that uh, these costs, these indirect costs have on other sectors of society? Yeah, so I'm really glad that you asked this because in all of this research I've been doing on subsidies, this was the one piece that really struck a chord with me that was really amazing to me and it's something that I don't think we talk about enough and that's the cost of decommissioning 
and cleaning up coal mines. Um, for me to start off, the important thing here is that states and the federal government are failing to collect enough money in the form of what we call bonds to adequately clean up and reclaim mine sites. And the way that these bonds work is that many states are only requiring what's called self-bonding, where a company basically has to say when they're proposing the mine operations, yes, we have enough money to reclaim this mine, however many years down the road we decide to close it. But they don't actually have to give the state anything at that particular point in time. And so the consequence of this is when these coal mining companies go bankrupt, which we're seeing happen a lot now on the East Coast, the state is now responsible for the full burden of those reclamation costs. And so we're looking at an estimated $11 billion to clean up all the abandoned mines in the country. And so that's a big number, kind of hard to wrap your mind around. And so I wanted to give an example for context here. Um, and so I was looking at an article about the numbers on coal mining in Ohio, for example. And I know that's a little bit far from the Great Plains here, but it's just a really great example of how these numbers break down. Um, and so they would need about $550 million to reclaim all the mining land in the state. And so the forfeiture of just one company, one company in the state alone, would result in the state needing over $200 million to clean up all the sites. And that amount alone would take the state fund about 150 years to recover because Ohio currently only has about 20 million set aside to cover reclamation costs. And so it's likely that the taxpayers would face these additional costs. And so this particular example really helped to emphasize, for me at least, how serious this situation really is. I read a lot of articles about what the situation looks like in West Virginia and Virginia as well. And honestly, it's, it's a little scary to think about what these costs will do to straight treasuries and even the federal treasury. Um, and it's a similar situation with oil companies. Again, companies are only asked to set aside anywhere from twenty dollars to $40,000 to plug up wells when the cost could really be hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so the U.S. Government Accountability Office is giving estimates of $435 billion to plug all of the wells in the United States. Um, and so available bond data suggests that the states on average have secured less than 1% of that amount. And so what that means is that you know, these oil and gas producing states are at risk of operator defaults and bankruptcy and are exposed to tens of billions of dollars in orphan well liability risks. And so I really like this quote that I found during my research because I think it sums up perfectly how our bonding situation is currently failing. Um, when states accept bonds worth only pennies on the dollar, it is like your bank providing a loan to purchase your home and taking only a mortgage on your mailbox. So, you know, we're asking them to <laughs> theoretically set aside hundreds of thousands of dollars, but only asking to see, you know, a couple ten, tens of thousands. And so we're just not adequately prepared for closing down these coal mines and these oil wells. And so these stories are great examples of indirect subsidies because the government and the taxpayers and communities uh, overall are ultimately paying for something that, keep in mind, the company was legally responsible for. It's, it's in the EPA, you know, it's in our law that they need to be reclaiming these sites. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just think that this decommissioning and reclamation is a really great example of the consequences um, of some of these indirect subsidies beyond simple dollar amounts. And with the uh, current administration very, uh, very much to, uh, saying that they are committed to uh, the, the, uh, the changeover uh, from traditional oil sources, oil, gas, uh, coal, as you mentioned, uh, to more renewable sources, uh, those costs are going to, they're, they're just waiting in the wings, it seems like. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I mean, 
you know, I'm, I'm excited at the potential of an energy transition. I'm excited for what this administration has planned. But as I'm reading these stories and I'm seeing the billions of dollars rack up in the cost that we're going to have to pay just to make sure that, you know, all of the waste associated with coal mining gets disposed of and cleaned up properly, you know, it makes me, it makes me a little nervous for what this energy transition might look like. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you think about the indirect subsidies, are, are there some opportunities uh, to help uh, renewables uh, with the indirect subsidies of one sort or another? Yeah, so this is a really exciting piece to me, um, coming from a research background driven by this desire to empower and support local communities. Um, And it's less about the renewable aspect of things and actually more about the the cleanup side of things. And so, you know, I've just thrown at you that we need billions of dollars to, you know, do all of this cleanup. But we're seeing initiatives now of employing oil and coal workers that, you know, we're taking those jobs away as we close down these mines and transition Um, to the remediation efforts to clean up these sites. And so, you know, the government is liable for a large chunk of the cost for cleanup. So it's this opportunity to create a more inclusive effort to clean up the environment. Um, And so one example of this is the Columbia Global Energy Policy Center in partnership with Resources for the Future actually did a report outlining the logistics of pushing a major federal effort to plug orphaned and abandoned wells. Um, And in their executive summary, they noted that this report examines the potential to boost U.S. employment in the oil and gas workforce while also reducing pollution through a federal program. And so this is really exciting to me because we have done all of this environmental harm. There is the risk of these communities losing their livelihoods through the closing of coal mines and the shutting down of oil production. But we also have the opportunity to do a lot of good here and help a lot of people if we're directing those funds for reclamation towards communities that need those funds as well. So at, at the end of the day, I, I know that uh, you've done a lot of work in this uh, arena uh, as you've, uh, you've done these studies and you're uh, eventually, I'm sure, going to be trying to assemble uh, a, 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 a work for your Ph.D. That, along these lines. What's your, uh, what's your vision about what the renewable energy industry looks like uh, and the, its relationship with un- Uncle Sam with, in- with uh, you know, subsidies down the road then? Yeah, that's it's a really great question, and it's definitely a tricky one because, um, you know, as I kind of highlighted here, I think that subsidies are definitely a double-edged sword um, because they have the potential to support an industry as it continues to grow. Um, it's really only through the production tax credit and the investment tax credit, in my opinion, that, you know, wind and solar were able to develop the way that they have been, that the technology has been improved the way that it has But I think at a certain point, you know, the government needs to step back a little bit um, because we have seen all of this outside investment, you know, all of these private companies. um, We see companies like Google and Amazon doing power purchasing agreements. So they're putting forth the capital to build these wind and solar farms. And so I think that it's important that these subsidies do start to drop so that we can see renewable energy supporting itself on the market, because I fully believe that it has the potential to do that. Um, But we saw with oil and gas and coal, um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, these reports are showing that the subsidies are actually just keeping them alive now. And I don't want to see that with the renewable energy sector. And I don't think we need to see it with the renewable energy sector. I definitely think that it will be able to stand on its own. Um, And I would like to see the subsidies, you know, helping to make it affordable to a certain extent, but also letting it grow. Um, We don't want to hold renewable energy's hand forever in the market, you know? Great way to end it. 
Claire, thank you so much for your time today. Doctoral student uh, from uh, University of Oklahoma, Claire Birch, joining us today on The Dynamic Decade. I'm Ron Hayes. We'll see you soon. Thanks for joining us. The Dynamic Decade starts today.